Yeah, we can cut that part. I just caught on my tongue. But uh, right. no, well, Great. I have I have some bad news. I just started recording this two, oh. two minutes ago, and I don't know if, if the oh. it, could, it doesn't retroactively record the whole thing, does it? No, definitely not. Uh, oh, Nike. I just I saw that come up. That is so oh, funny. No. That has not happened to us yet. That's okay. Oh, no. That's okay. We're fine. Yo, mama. Hey, doggy dog. What's good, Al? What's <laughs> up? Good to see us. What's oh, up, it's like we've already done this. What's we've been like here that? before. We're going mm-hmm. in circles. Um, yeah, if you so... didn't get the joke, listeners, we we forgot to hit the record button after an hour and a half of recording. <laughs> yeah. So Just here kidding. we are. That again. would have been awful. Thankfully, it was 13 minutes. I had it on my watch. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. What's up? It's good to be back. We're here with Jake. Jake Schwint. Um, a uh, friend of ours from Wichita, Kansas. Previously, a, a two-time Hot Guys Cry 2 guest. The only Once, two-timer. Uh, you're forgetting about Maggie Crabtree. We'll let that slide. Oh, but, I'm so sorry. Um, she was on the same topic. These are two different topics. Right. So, Jakers was on the I'm Lord sorry, of the Rings pod, our most famous podcast. And he's back for our deep dive into Father Elijah, a book by Michael O'Brien, and the themes surrounding Father Elijah. Um, if you missed it, we, we, we dove deep into uh, the author, Michael O'Brien, who's Alex's favorite author yep. last time around. Um, this time we're getting into this story, this Father Elijah story, probably his most well-known work, uh, a story about the apocalypse. It is an apocalypse, as it says on the, on the cover, um, a story about the end of the end times and about a man um, sort of chosen to... Uh, deliver a message to the antichrist and this rise of the antichrist in in europe and on the world stage and and how to sort of how it all might go down and I, we were talking about it for a couple of reasons it's it's one of our all of our like maybe top 10 top 15 favorite books um and it's also hits on a lot of the stuff we see going on right now even though this book was written in the middle of the 90s it so 25 years later, you would think the world stage would change by um, by a lot, but O'Brien somehow saw what was going on in his time, saw what was going on in the whole century before that, and sort of hits it right on the head of, of sort of what could go down and, and what we see. I don't know. It's not not that it's not to say that we're in the end times and there's an antichrist rising or anything like that, but in a certain sense, we're always in the end times, and these things are maybe always going on, um, in, in a certain sense. So, so, so with that, um, Jakers, what is, uh, meaningful about this book in, in, in your eyes? Um, there's two things I think that'll stick with me long-term. The first being the depiction of the antichrist. Um, cause I think there's an impression out there that, you know, the antichrist will be easily discerned, um, that it'll be apparent evil, and you'll just be able to catch on to it. But the cunning nature of the character in the book is something that I think will last, that people will hold on to. And then the smoke rev scene, um, which we can get more into later. But I think that's some of O'Brien's most original thought that in any of his work. Yeah, yeah. maybe the smoke rev stuff so good. I love the smoke rev stuff. I can't wait to tell the story of the text message you sent to us and how my response to it. Um, 
but uh, <laughs> I, I, I love, I, I agree with you, especially that, well, both points, but that first point about just the depiction of the Antichrist kind of shaking us and saying that the Antichrist is not going to have horns in, in a pitchfork and be clearly evil. If, if, if someone arose that was clearly evil, no one would follow that person, but it would be um, kind of honey, co- covered in honey and, and attractive. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, like you see it in, this is not a, necessarily a political statement, although we probably will make some later, but our last two presidents had like attractive qualities that that weirdly gained a following from a certain, a, not an even small sect of people, a huge groups of people were like, I'm in on whatever this person says. Um, and it was just about the the way they talked and their their ideas and everything like that. And not not saying that either of our last two presidents is any sort of the antichrist, antichrist. <laughs> but but uh, it is like the, the character who is the antichrist in this book is also like a political uh, the president I think of Europe, and I guess you can see how even if they had like uh, troublesome ideas down the road, the the group of people that was already bought in would just go along with it. And we'll talk about that with like the darkness of the 20th century and everything like that. But Al, Al, what are your thoughts on all that? Yeah, I, uh, Jake, it's funny. You, you said almost the, not word for word, but pretty close to what I, I asked my wife about earlier today. We went on a little walk. I was telling her we were recording tonight and I asked her just kind of, you know, what, what do you remember most about Father Elijah? What'd you like about it? And she said that, I think she read it almost two years ago. So it was a while ago. She's like, I don't really remember a whole lot the storyline itself, but I just remember being blown away by how prophetic Michael O'Brien was in it. Mm-hmm. Um, again, not saying like the Antichrist is present and alive and running around today uh, or, he, or he's the president, uh, but more so just like she saw the ways that the world existed right now so much throughout this book and it blew her away. So I, I really do. Um, I think that's what strikes me about this, this novel. But for me, this is Father Elijah is so meaningful because it, it introduced me to O'Brien at a time, and, and I talked about this, I think, at our last pod. It introduced me to a time when I was um, at a really crucial juncture in my faith. It was I read it the summer between senior year of high school and freshman year of college. It's my first time drinking and partying and um, trying to go out, explore my freedoms and stuff. And funny enough, Father Elijah was the book that I picked up. I was reading it while I was um, gallivanting around Europe with Mr. Nance's like, 50 of us other kids just uh, drinking absurd amounts of beer for the first time, even if it didn't taste good. But I was reading this book and I was just fascinated with it. And what fascinated me the most was the character of Father Elijah himself. So he has its flaws, not, not necessarily Father Elijah has its flaws, but more, more so the development of Father Elijah's character. Uh, there's this term that writers use. It's like the Superman problem. Superman is an issue and a lot of times people don't connect with him or love him as much because he's he's too perfect right mm-hmm. he's he can fly he's got uh and yeah he's, he's indestructible basically without kryptonite um, but he's also a good and virtuous man and so father elijah almost seems too good at times too holy too perfect and there's these there's these weird moments where he does show his weaknesses and his flaws, like when he gets drunk off of a glass of wine next to Anna Benedetti at that 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 dinner. I, I almost feel like Michael Bryan threw those in there so he wasn't too perfect. But I, I just for me reading this, I was I loved being in his mind 
as he was praying, as he was having conversations with people. And I just, he gave me an ideal to look to. He gave me a, a man, an example of holiness that I was reading for the first time. Like I, I really had never read anything like this at that point. And so it really gave me something to hold on to. And, and that was this idea of holiness through Father Elijah. So it's kind of a wild idea, but that's, that's why it was so meaningful to me then. Um, and even now I'd say it's just like, it's, it's so unique to read something like this. I love this idea of, of a Catholic thriller that I can pick up and read and just know it's very, very wholesome top to bottom. Parts of what you just said uh, were like word for, for word from the voiceover at the end of the dark night. You remember that? Yes. An yes, ideal to strive true. for. Uh, a dark night. A dark night. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I hear you with the the way that he talks and prays and, and interacts with people. I, I was I was like, this is a Superman. This is not how any priest or Catholic person I know ever interacts. It's cheesy. It's not how they yeah. pray. It's cheesy, mm-hmm. but like the scenes where he's praying with his friends, like stopping every, I thought those moments were cheesy, but um, Alec, you said once that you imagined that that's how the apostles might've interacted with one another. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's some truth in that. I think the apostles were maybe cooler than uh, father Elijah, but um, yeah, they were probably always every single moment of their life turning to silence and prayer. Mm-hmm. So Peter, um, Peter and Paul for show were cooler than father Elijah. Yeah, but just the, imagine fishing all day. You're going to have like stories and jokes and, and stuff like They had to be good storytellers. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay. So oh, Brian, uh, this theme that he goes back to of, of this darkness of the 20th century uh, looming on our world, uh, affecting every single man um, and, and their actions and, 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 uh, out, and that it's still kind of present in the um, political stage of, of the world we live in today. So uh, I thought maybe we could touch on that a little bit. Jake, do you have any um, thoughts on that theme? Do you like that as a theme? Do you think it's overplayed? Um, and do you think it's still present, the darkness of the 20th century in our world today? Um, well, I think the question, uh, the naivety to believe that you would easily be able to discern the Antichrist um, ties directly into how some of the powers came to be in the 20th century. Because um, the question of, um, you know, I would never become a Nazi. You know, that's a very naive point of view and oversimplification um, that demonstrates like kind of like a lack of historical knowledge. Um, so I think he utilizes that theme to play into the Antichrist theme, um, be it in Sophia House and Father Elijah, because, you know, we're told in history class that it's really simple. Hitler is just this evil dude. And that's all there is to it, which is 100% true, but it's also more complicated than that. Um, just like the Antichrist is 100% an evil dude, but it's also more complicated than that. He's more deceiving and cunning. Um, it's like there were a lot of positive things for the German people that came out of Nazism um, in terms of just like economic policies and monetary policies, you know, backing the currency with gold and um, renewing the factories and, um, you know, even weirdly enough, you know, Hitler fought avidly against pornography because um, he thought it would weaken the army. Um, that is so wild. I did not isn't know that, that bizarre? Because mm-hmm. um, we're like evil dude, evil dude. And he is an evil dude, but even he could see like how pornography weakened mm-hmm. men. 
and like mass tuberculosis screenings, just r- stuff like that. Good things that were good for the German people that disguised um, what the actual agenda was. Um, and so that's why to make the statement that I would have never been like, I would have been fighting against the Nazis if I'd been in Germany at that time is such a naive um, claim. And imagine for a second that, you know, we go to World War One, the three of us and, you know, two of us get blown away and Nate goes back to Germany, uh, can't find a job. His home country's in shambles. You think Nate's the one who survives? I, I think Nate, Nate gets lucky. Um, well, I'm the one hiding under the, uh, in the, in the <laughs> trench. So, yeah. I appreciate that. That's good. <laughs> but, you know, the Treaty of Versailles, the classic example, um, and Nate's lucky enough to get a job in a factory and he sees French and British and Russian soldiers coming in. I mean, there's no German army anymore and they're taking all the production from the factories. Um, And then the classic story of inflation where you have to take a wheelbarrow of cash to buy bread. uh, And you have that inflation because you're paying off war debts. The government just keeps printing money. And meanwhile, you feel the threat of the communist revolution in Russia and then the Nazis come and they say, hey, not only do we have a solution, but we're going to tell you whose fault it is. In the same way, the Antichrist will have a solution. But all you have to do is give that inch, you know, just um, submit to an atheistic regime, regime you know, to betray your neighbor just slightly um, and you can have stability. And so I think O'Brien kind of harnesses that theme as leading into Father Elijah with how he talks about talks in Sophia House, but then um, in Father Elijah as well, the dark, yeah, the darkness of the 20th century feeds in, into where we are now. Yeah, I uh, see like that I, is. Yeah, that's, that's incredible, Jacob, because I, I think this, this we're, we're really pounding this idea of the Antichrist. And I think one of the things I see, especially is the way 21st century leaders, world leaders, especially leaders in general or organizations in general, they appear as this, you called it like this honey covered ideals and stuff, right? Like we were just talking about our last two presidents, Trump and Obama, couldn't be more different kinds of guys, but both parties, both sides claim them as their saviors or their, their, they're like their man to change. And, you know, you always see those portraits of Obama in red, white, and blue that said hope. Uh, mm-hmm. I made the same one with Scott Frost on it, of course. Um, mm. But, but that, Trump, that didn't Trump's turn out. Which which turned out better? Do you think for, this, for the American <laughs> That's people? a good question. Right, well, we're not done with we're not done with Frost yet, baby. He's got he's got a few more years left in him at least before we make a decision on that. But yeah, and then Trump obviously has got this you know absurd not absurd sorry excuse me but more like this this crazy following this mass following of people and um, they, they both have their faults they both have these things but they're both like. You know, we, we wouldn't call either of them evil, per se, in the same way that we could objectively, not at the time possibly, but look back on Hitler. And I, what I love is, man, Michael O'Brien, just, he oftentimes put things so well. He paints these pictures, like we said, this darkness that bore, has borne mm-hmm. so much of what we see in the 21st century. And one of the ways I, I heard him put it, and I can't remember which novel it was. I can't remember if it was Sophia House or not, but he said it's like um, it's kind of in a comparison of the way the East and the West of the world, their their religions work, especially Christianity. It's like um, the devil in the East works more like a, an alligator 
where through pain and suffering and horrors and death, especially in the 20th century, would just snap off the head of someone's faith, right? And just one single quick stroke. But in the West, and this is what I see, this is what I see the 21st century has done to faith, is it's like a, um, a serpent that is cunning and really lulls its victims until finally then it takes its prey, it takes the head of the faith. And that's what I feel like this darkness of the 21st century has born in these, not just 21st century leaders, but these, you know, this world, this consumerism we've fallen into this. Um, he's, he just, Michael Bryan hates electronics. I think like, I don't think he even has email anymore is what I read in his biography. And, and that's just, yeah, he has- I, he has to walk to town to check his email to go to wi-fi and all that yeah it's why it's i just i love the way he paints that as nowadays it's this 21st century is a result of that alligator did you know it we're we're lulled to sleep our faith is lulled to sleep by this this serpentine kind of idea what were we gonna say jake i think it's kyle duke father kyle dugan that uh i don't know if he ended up doing it but he was in canada and emailed father or michael o'brien father like, michael hey, o'brien hey uh you want to like get coffee or something and he emailed him back and like they had a date set up oh um and i don't know if it actually he, i think something came up man that'd be the, the group no the group that dukes was with he wasn't able to go i'll fact check me on that uh story okay can you picture can you picture Michael O'Brien just sitting in the uh, coffee shop waiting because he didn't check his emails that that was canceled? <laughs> the poor just, bastard. Oh, that's funny. Just stroking his beard. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. thinking. Huh, that's really funny. Writing a book about it. Mm-hmm. Um, golly, that's fascinating. You, I, which would you prefer, the the clean stroke of or the like slow cunning fall into like? Well, what where? Where did it lead the the West? This this serpent, this it's this cunning. It's like despair almost. Like nothing is true, nothing is real, nothing is yeah, important. It blurs the um, lines so much, right? It's it's so more difficult, so much more difficult now to see good and evil. I think. Yeah, yeah, it's rough. And Jake, I keep thinking about this, but the, but yeah, I think all three of us would have had ancestors in the middle of Europe, mm-hmm. uh, 120 mm-hmm. years ago. And if not for like some decision they made, we would have been there too. Um, but yeah, all, all, all three of us lucked out with nothing. We didn't have to make the choice of like, mm-hmm. yeah. am I going to go along to get along here? Mm-hmm. That The hidden life, uh, would we be the guy in the hidden life or would it be the, every other poor, like the guy you described, Jake? It's, Are y'all it's, both German? Y'all both German? Yeah, I'm German. Jakers? Oh yeah. Volga yeah, German. Nice. Y'all would have, I, I think, uh, did you invade Czechoslovakia? Yeah, you sure did. Yeah, they baby. Sure, they had it coming. <laughs> it's coming again, baby. <laughs> yeah, baby. <laughs> Talking about your ancestors as Germans invading other countries. Proud heritage of German invasion. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting. Yeah, so, um, yeah, that's fascinating the way that the those, those themes of the, like, on a macro scale – in, in World War II especially, um, still are among us in, in maybe in more of a micro scale. We don't really have any Hitlers these days, but we certainly have concessions. And, and um, we, we see people doing all these good things. So we say, sure, go ahead and keep doing these good things and ignore the decision that they're, they're also being forced to be 
make, um, like Jake was describing. Um, So I want to move on to Father Elijah, who himself is a product of that cloud of of the 20th century, but he turns out a little differently. Um, Al, what do you think is different about Father Elijah and, and his story, and how does it reflect both the darkness of the 20th century and then how... I guess grace and, and the Lord can affect that uh, and and turn that awful um, nature of the 20th century into something good. Yeah, it's just a freaking brilliant idea by Michael O'Brien, right? Father Elijah's story itself is so awesome, right? He's this uh, he's an ex Jew who miraculously survives the Holocaust. He gets married rises up in the rinks in Jewish politics. All of a sudden, boom, his wife dies and this wife and child die in this tragic accident. He's lost looking for the world. And again, that's, that's the reptile, right? That's the, that's the crocodile cutting off his head of faith and stumbles upon a monastery converts and then is asked to try to save the world from the antichrist. I guess just an unbelievable synopsis for a book. I'm, I'm in, if you pitch me that. So I just, I think it's interesting. He they talk about him several times in his Jewish life, in his pre-wife mm-hmm. dying life. Even the president talks about you were being groomed for one of my like where I am right now. You could have yeah. been a leader in Europe. You could have been this person, but you chose a different path. Yeah, it, it's wild because he Father Elijah personifies. He could have personified exactly what the 20th century bore into the 21st century for what a lot of these world leaders we see. But what we really see is how he personifies redemption of Mm -hmm. the 20th century, the way that God has found a way to turn horrible, awful, evil things into the resurrection, right? Like the, the, the greatest, greatest tragedy in the history of the world is the condemnation of God himself, the death of God himself on the cross by men. But God found a way to turn that into the greatest event in the history of the world, which is the resurrection. And that's what Father Elijah personifies. I just, I love it, this grace-filled way. And, and it's really interesting, too, because the president, like you just said, offers a foil to Elijah because he basically is who Elijah could have become. We talk about this a lot and we've, in the past in this podcast, just that, that idea that uh, the, whole, the whole means of our our salvation sort of comes across by the the devil overplaying his hand by snatching up the Lord and Mm -hmm. and saying, I win and I'll take this. And in the Lord using the devil's tool itself for his victory. And you see that I love seeing that in literature. Um, You see it a little bit here. You see that Lord of the Rings, you see a Harry Potter, all these, all these instances of the bad guy uh, overplays his hand and the good guy uses exactly the bad guy's, tool to uh to overcome them so mm-hmm. yeah I, I find that fascinating jake any any thoughts on on father elijah as a as a character yeah death and resurrection um obviously is a theme that flows through all christian work but uh, more intensely just you see so many examples of people who have tremendous loss and choose to remain in good friday and become sorrowful because of it and never move beyond that um, and then there's so many people that experience tremendous loss, um, and almost they just, they find joy and peace, um, that is beyond them, you know, Bob and Karen Peck, um, examples like that. 
and I like, you know, Father Elijah is almost a too perfect version of that, but a, one who's been through the crucible um, and is stronger for it. And I think in a nutshell, the smoker I've seen where uh, he's just beaten down, you know, he's tried to, you know, question God and everything. And that the book is that in a, in a nutshell uh, that he comes out better for it. Let's let's dive into smoke rev. I think it's yeah, time. baby. Let's have we, to do it. We uh, and Alec and Jake in particular love this scene. It's right in the middle of the book. This I'll, I'll try to describe it, um, and y'all might have to help me out. It is it, strange. It, it's very <laughs> strange. So it's it's almost like a, a very di- a side plot, a side quest in a video game where you're, you're yeah. like, this is not. This seemingly has nothing to do with. Can we get you some other Elijahs or something? Yeah, Father yeah, but it, even though it's. Even though it's like a side plot, it feels like, and we we said we were going to compare this to the Grand Inquisitor from Brothers Karamazov, but it feels like so central to the book. Even though if you take it out, you still have the whole storyline of the book. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's this the same thing's true of Dostoevsky and Grand Inquisitor. Um, mm-hmm. But the scene in a nutshell, what this? So if you'd read Sophia's House, you would have a appreciation for the um, how he got to where he's at. So basically. A, Jewish bookkeeper, um, not bookkeeper, but book sale guy with a bookstore took him in during the Holocaust, had like homosexual temptations, um, but never acted on them and protected him as a young boy rather than abusing him. Um, and basically became a savior because he was betrayed by Smokrev because Smokrev wanted the boy for himself to, um, to lust after essentially. Um, so the KGB or the yeah KGB comes to the door, not KGB. The the, the, the Nazis, the Gestapo, um, come to the door, and uh, he says that he's him, and basically becomes a Christ figure and dies so that Father Elijah can escape. So the Smokrev guy was present in Father in Sophia House, and he's on his he tracks down Father Elijah when he's uh, where is he when he. Is he in Rome or is he in Prague, like Poland? Oh, he's in Krakow. I, I, I think he's in. I was going to say Krakow. Poland. Yeah. He's in Krakow and he's trying to get inside the house. Um, yeah. He's trying to get inside the apartment. Yeah. So he somehow finds a way. And oh, he asks the woman downstairs who owns it. Can he go inside? And he goes and gets the key from Smokrev. But, anyways, yeah, Smokrev like just plays with him because he's this evil, like just depressed old man who just wants to philosophically mess around with father Elijah and try to make him depressed like him. And in the end, he like lies to him that he basically was going to sell him to smoke rev and that he was, um, you know, abused him and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and turns out it's a lie, but he like goes to this whole philosophical gauntlet about God and why God doesn't intervene into the universe um, and protect his loved ones, um, you know, when there's the Holocaust and everything going on, why doesn't God step in? Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's the conversation in a nutshell. Oh, that's good stuff. Thanks for explaining that, Jake. They, what, what do you love about the scene so much? Why do you like Smoker as far as so much? Well, I mean, I, I at first when I'm reading it, I, I'm like this, because uh, I'm expecting a story. You're expecting it to go a certain way and, and you're it's not going anywhere, but you can't help it but fall into the story um and when smoke rev is antagonizing 
Father Elijah escalating it and escalating it and escalating it. And Father Elijah is so confused and so hurt. He has every reason to strike out and and put an end to it, walk away. He can walk away. He can lash out. He can, he's even like, Smoker was offering, like, kill me now. That, that's what I want you to do. I want you to smother me. And then it really is a, a sudden mercy. It hits mm-hmm. you out of nowhere. And it is unreal, like how fast, like just, and then and the next paragraph is Father Elijah embraces smoke rev. It comes out of nowhere. And I think that's exactly, that's exactly what grace and, and, and mercy does. There's not like, God is always working and God is always laying down things so he can pull a string, right? But that's not necessarily how we see it. Mercy sometimes is just like a bolt of lightning and grace is just comes and hits you like a, like a, um, you know, a, a train that you don't see, you don't see anything else coming. But, and that's, that's what it seemed like to me. It was just like God, God working in a way where he doesn't really have to, he doesn't have to obey the rules of like how emotions work in, in father Elijah and in father Elijah represents that of like, I don't have to, oh, I don't have to obey the rules of what my emotions are telling me to do. I don't have to do anything like that. I, all I have to do is choose mercy. And, and uh, I basically, in that way, we both, we both win. I don't have to beat you. We can both win here. Mm-hmm. What about you, Al? You love this scene. Oh, I love it. I think Smoke Rev is just a, a – thanks for sharing that, Nate, by the way. I appreciate it. That was, that was a really good way of putting it. I never saw that moment as like grace and mercy. So that's that's really neat. But I, I love this because uh, Smoke Rev is, first off, a hell of a character. Like he just – I don't know about y'all, but he gives you the creeps. Just from, just from reading through it, you just like feel how slimy and gross he is. And you can imagine him sitting in his bed just smoking cigarettes and eating this – eating whatever the hell he wants and making his people come in and just spending his entire life getting whatever the heck he wants. It's, it's just, it's great how I think, I think he is one of the best characters O'Brien has ever created side character or not. He can just, I can just feel his gross mm-hmm. about him. Um, I also, I, I really like it because it, it is kind of like Elijah trying to be a missionary straight up. It reminds me of me like having coffee with a, a frat dude. Um, at a and not necessarily like frat dudes or like slimy most smoker of like but mm. you kind of go in and these guys know that you're a missionary they know that uh, they know what you're about they know what you're kind of got an agenda in a way and the way elijah treats this like you said is, is so wonderful he has every reason to to just slash this dude to punch him to kill him even but like you said mercy his grace his goodness his holiness the spirit wins over again so it's really cool but really i think what i love about this most is smoke rev's backstory is exactly why i love o'brien he tells these many stories and, and really his smoke rev's backstory is a story within a story within a story right because it has, doesn't have a whole lot to do with father elijah's plot line itself but his backstory really broke my heart like it's it's just um it's incredible storytelling. It's incredible storytelling. He finds a way to drag my soul into another soul's life. And, the, and it's just mm-hmm. this like created soul all of a sudden. And I just, I, I hurt for smoke rev, even though I'm sitting in this room with this nasty, disgusting man. I just, he's like constantly displaying how horrible, disgusting he is. And he's giving me every reason to, to despise him. But, but this backstory, I just like, I start to feel him and 
feel for him and just how poor little lonely he mm-hmm. was. And I, I texted both y'all as we were all reading this, um, I think in end of November, he's telling the story about how he, he meets Peter again later in his life or Petro, I think is, is what his real name is. And he's meeting him as he's a baker running this restaurant or whatever. And the end of the story ends with Peter's words. And Peter, he, he asked Peter, he says, do you remember me? Peter pauses and he says, I remember a little boy who was alone too much. I liked him. I always wondered what became of him. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm almost kind of getting emotional. Just like no, that's thinking like, about yeah. that right now. Like it's just such a, that that's not necessarily incredible writing right there. Nothing beautiful, nothing extravagant about those words, but those like, I can feel the simple loneliness, the hurt that smoker felt as a, probably 12 year old little boy. His, his friend wanted to help him, but, but smoke rev, like he just, he was just a lonely, isolated, depressed little kid. And I just, I connect with that so much because I think most of us at some time or another during our childhood felt that way. Like, especially when we, when we grew all three of us, you know, Nate, you've got three in your family, Jake, you got three, I got four. Our, our families aren't by you know historical standards massive families they're they're pretty average I'd say maybe above average technically in American standards but I think when we have these bigger gaps in our families and, and this is just a theory of my own uh, I think when we have these bigger gaps in our families it leaves a lot of room for loneliness mm-hmm. um, and I remember this time period in my life where my, my brother drew had just gone off to high school so I was between my fourth grade and fifth grade summer he was the best friend of my life at that time. So he went to high school. So I was stuck at home while he was off playing football, basketball, baseball camps, doing all kinds of high school stuff. And I was just at home with my little sister and my mom that summer. And I just, I remember this intense loneliness. And yeah, it sounds weird. I think, what are you, 12? I think that's in the fifth grade or maybe not even, I think like 11, 10 or 11. But I, I still can like go back and I remember mowing the lawn in my backyard and just being bored as hell and lonely as hell and reading and watching movies and TV all day. Cause I just like, I didn't have anyone to be with. And I, I just connect so much with smoke rev in those moments. I, I, nothing in this book or any of Michael O'Brien's work has moved me more than those three little lines. I love, love, love smoke rev's backstory, man. It just hurts me. No, it's an so, emotion. Like with the bunnies gosh god yeah it hits you Mm -hmm. i think peter's words are so telling most of us we are we're just little boys who were alone too much at some one time or another and what did that lead to like being alone generally leads to any a lot of vices Mm -hmm. especially Mm -hmm. as a as a youth being 10 to 15 that's when uh, many boys stumble upon pornography I mean, for the first yeah, time. It's exactly yeah, when I learned how to lust. That's when I like started mm-hmm. to, to, to learn how to fantasize and, you know, sleepovers. You stay up late looking at movies and uh, trying to find a dirty movie, all those things. That's, that's exactly where it all started. It's wild. Mm, yeah. It kind of speaks to the, the, well, how Peter grew up, which was in a house full of like nine kids and mm-hmm. he's always with somebody else. You know, there's, mm-hmm. I've, I've thought about that lately, just living alone. Um, this is the first century when anyone would live, live alone ever. You would, you know, you would stay at home. You'd, you'd, you'd have a family, you'd stay at home and you got married, you would live with that, 
with your wife, but you would stay at your parents' house until you got married. You wouldn't necessarily just go strike out and have an apartment in downtown by yourself. So <laughs> have a nice flat. Um, yeah, like we weren't necessarily meant to live like this. Um, yeah. And yeah, you see it in, in Smoke Rev is the extreme example, but it's still relatable. Even through all mm-hmm. his evils, it's still relatable. Beautiful. I think there's a, they, ahead, there's, a health, there's a healthy aloneness though. Yes, yes. It's a difference between isolation and solace. It's like solace is peaceful. It's beautiful. It's like you're, you're okay with aloneness. But but isolation is 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 depressing. It's damning. It's this like yeah this oh this wretched feeling that I can still remember so vividly. You guys have both read Brothers K. I'm embarrassed to say that I I have never. I have uh, not but, read all of it, but I've read about half of it. Oh, <laughs> maybe gotcha. not even. So there's the famous chapter. It's it's kind of known as this. Um, like maybe the standout chapter from this, this one of the greatest books of all time. It's this grand inquisitor scene. Jake, do you want to tell us a little bit about that and how it connects with, with smoke rep? Yeah. I mean, it's the greatest chapter in the entire canon of literature outside of anything biblical. Like that's, that's what most bo- people actually say. That's not just a Jake statement. Yeah. It's like a most, yeah. Most people who seriously analyze literature would say that because it has so many themes in it of Christianity and humanism. Um, and it's all, but it's a standalone play basically that God comes back during the inquisit Christ comes back during the inquisition. Basically the Cardinal at the time says that they don't need him. Um, that humanity has basically achieved so is about to achieve so much peace and prosperity on their own. So Christ is basically put on trial and rejected, but it's the most soul searching um, ch- chapter of literature you will ever read. It will take all your faith and just put it in front of a firing squad and just mow it down. But then it will um, build it back up again because you realize how empty the the humanism that is being proposed is um, when it's not centered on the cross mm-hmm. and the smoke rev the smoke rev chapter does it in its own way because we talked about like, why doesn't God intervene? Um, so, it, you know, if God intervened in, in our suffering, according to O'Brien's chapter, um, he would hurt his children in a more profound way than the Holocaust ever could because he would alter the actual moral fabric of the universe is how he fates, um, phrases it because he would remove our choice. Um, because the cross is ultimately a choice, uh, but he, God does respond to our suffering. And that is the, the expression that is the incarnation, um, is what the conclusion, um, and he talks about that earlier. I think it's chapter seven. Um, he talks about that as well, but both chapters, neither because the brother and brothers Karamazov that's having this play expressed to him his name's Aloysia and he like became a monk and his brother's trying to break his faith mm-hmm. his brother who's became like this humanistic um soon to be communist type person um well it was before anyways <laughs> yeah. um, but it, it doesn't break either one of their faiths in the end it, it makes Elijah stronger and it makes Aloysia stronger um because it is so profound and there are moments in each chapter where you're like this is like, this is depressing. Like maybe he actually 
is on to something. But, but I, I mean, the grand inquisitor stands alone, you know, as a chapter compared to the smoker I've seen, it's just, I mean, when you have Dostoevsky writing it and it's stood up to the, <laughs> yeah, stood up to the to challenge of time, uh-huh. but you can definitely yeah. tell that O'Brien was deeply influenced by that chapter mm-hmm. when he wrote this chapter. Cause they both kind of, like we talked about earlier, stand out from the rest of the book. Um, they kind of, you know, if you read the chapter by itself, it would still make sense. And it would, is it necessary for the rest of the um, plot to still feel whole? So I didn't actually realize just how inspired this was by the, the Grand Inquisitor until page 312, if y'all have your books on you right now. In, in the Grand Inquisitor, it's Ivan, Aloysius' older brother, who is, who is in the likeness of Smokerev. He's a very clever man. He's got this great distrust for a good and benevolent God. And he's speaking, he's telling this play, this story to Aloysia, his little brother, who mirrors Elijah. It's very, he's a very, very good, holy, just kind of almost an innocent man. And I wouldn't describe Elijah as innocent per se, but the way Aloysia responds to Ivan's play. Do you remember, Jake? He kisses him. Mm -hmm. Just like Peter. Just like Peter. But also Jesus, not Jesus, Elijah kisses smoker here at the end of this no wait does he kiss him yeah 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 yeah. Yeah. he took smoker's face in his hands and he kissed him on one cheek and then the other and he yells get away from me get away you are not my judas and elijah says no i am not your judas and he comes back to him and says because he asks him why do you kiss me why do you want to touch my face and elijah simply responds because i love you like that's when i realized holy smokes like this is just um you know, this is O'Brien's take. This is his his version of the Grand Inquisitor, basically. Beautiful. Wow. Wow, Jake. Uh, awesome, awesome uh, summary of, of that. I know. Uh, I forget how freaking well read you are. Thank you, Jake. <laughs> what a masterpiece. Thanks, yeah, that, that quote, should God destroy the moral structure of the universe in order to save the physical universe? I mean, that is... The entire uh, pseudo-intellectual atheism uh, case of of like, well, if God was so good, why doesn't he change? Why doesn't he do something? Why doesn't he stop these babies from getting bone cancer? Why doesn't he make the Holocaust never to have happened? All these things. And, and Jake, mm-hmm. what you just said is the, you know, the bones for that reasoning. It would harm us far more than he could help us by taking away our free will he would turn us into something other than other than human if Mm -hmm. if he did some of that stuff uh here's our breaking point for this episode uh we'll release the next episode uh in a couple days part two in a couple days yo mama i'm gonna keep it real with you